bullying. The Me Too movement against sexual harassment. Is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. It's been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off. What I actually think she's trying to say. Making the same old excuses. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Welcome to Unraveling Pink, a podcast tackling gender bias through conversation. I'm Annie Rogaski. In this season, I have been exploring the different ways the man box restricts men from speaking up or acting in the face of gender bias. The first episode in this season spends quite a bit of time explaining what the man box is. So if you don't already know, you might want to go back to that and listen to that episode. But just generally, the man box reflects the social constraints that we put on men to behave in manly ways, like to not show emotion or to be strong or stoic. And it can also make it difficult for male allies to speak up against gender bias. So it's an important issue for gender equality, which is why I'm talking about it. In each episode, I talk a little bit about how the man box impacts women, why it causes action or inaction in men, and what, if anything, we can do to ease its grip on all of us. This week's topic is, I don't quite know how to describe it. I initially called it emotion in the man box. I toyed with toxic masculinity, and I'm just going to dive into whatever it is, and we can categorize it however we want. But one of the aspects of the man box that fascinates me the most are the restrictions that we as society put on men to not show emotion. And this shows up in different ways. It might be expectations that men are strong, are stoic, don't show weakness, don't ask for help. This is one of the prime examples of how a man is typically viewed as a man, and yet it has a lot of negative impacts both on women but also on men. It impacts men in the ways that they're able to show up and express themselves and the emotions that they're socially acceptable to access and express. It also affects the women who try to connect with men who maybe can't communicate fully because they aren't allowed to express themselves in ways that women can, so they're speaking different languages. Really the only benefit I can think of for the behavior that is defined by the man box is for men to gain status or power with other men. The problem with that is that they can hurt themselves in the process. I'm not the only one fascinated with this topic. There's actually been increased interest recently in traditional masculinity and whether there's a healthier masculinity we can work our way to. There have been a lot of discussions about toxic masculinity, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because I think there's a visceral reaction to that term that isn't helpful, even though I think the term has value and is probably accurate. I will note that there's a really great video that defines toxic masculinity in a way that makes clear it's not a description of men, but a way that men can sometimes behave. I'll put a link to the video in the show notes. I encourage you to check it out. It's really well done. There's also been considerable resistance by some men to what they perceive as a discussion about fixing men. 
I think because that suggests something's wrong with men. And, and talking about toxic masculinity, like the Gillette ad in the beginning of this episode, or talking about redefining or changing masculinity, is being approached as a way to open up new opportunities for men, not to restrict them or fix them. And it also has the added benefit of creating better gender relationships with women. So it should be a win-win, but it hasn't really been perceived by everyone to be a win-win. So I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit and try to understand why it's so hard for us to change the way we define masculinity and whether we should or not. I dug into a lot of different articles and research and found that this topic is wrapped up in a lot of different factors. Biology, nurture, societal expectations, structures that were set up at a different time that no longer feel relevant. And at the end of it, as I look back at, at what I've read and listened to, it's almost like we spent decades building the Marlboro Man, but by the time he was perfected, nobody was smoking anymore and he seemed out of place. And I can see how men would feel like they grew up being expected to be one person, and now that they've mastered being that person, the rules have changed and they feel tricked. So I totally understand that there can be a negative reaction to, number one, having followed the rules as they've been uh, set out by society and still not succeeding, and number two, having those rules changed. And so I wanted to, to look at the ways that some men are thinking about this topic. And there's an interesting article in USA Today by Aliyah Dadagir entitled, Men Pay a Steep Price When It Comes to Masculinity. And she quotes Don McPherson, who is an ex-NFL quarterback, who says, masculinity is a performance, it's an act. We don't raise boys to be men, we raise boys to not be women or gay men. We don't affirm what a loving man is, we're not supposed to be effeminate or care or love or be sensitive. And it's all utter BS because we are all of these things. He continues, men police other men when they try to break out of the masculinity box. It's how the system reinforces itself. We are constantly gauging our peer group to find out what's acceptable, knowing that if we come close to a line where we demonstrate a wholeness of ourselves, the admonishment is quick and unforgiving. And I love how he concludes this discussion. He says, if my power as a man lies in my privilege over women or my privilege to be identified as a hyper-masculine football player, I denounce that power. That's not power to me. That's a privilege that comes from oppression. We value football, but not teachers. We value sports, but we don't value men who are loving or whole or who are caring. What's the message about the kind of masculinity we value? I think that's an amazing observation. I'm glad it came from a man. It's not about women fixing men. There are men who understand that the way we raise our boys and the societal expectations we have on men are not enabling men or allowing men to fully express themselves. This, this topic was also tackled in a Time article by Jack Myers who writes that there's a new generation of men who are feeling abandoned by the thousands of years of history that defined what it meant to be a real man, to be strong, to be a provider, to be an authority, to be the ultimate decision maker, and to be economically, educationally, physically, and politically dominant. That basically describes the man box. And anecdotally, I think he's right. 
I've talked with plenty of men who are feminists or supportive of gender equality who tell me they still struggle with these pressures. They feel like they're expected to show up in all of these ways that the man box requires. And these pressures run deep. But Jack Myers offers a path to something new and better. So what he says is, we have the window right now to redefine what a good man, a real man is in the 21st century. As a society, we need to elevate the standards to which men are being held and no longer accept the outdated mantra that men will be men and boys will be boys. We must have zero tolerance for the destructive brotherhood that occurs when men of all ages gather and depend on sexism and misogyny as their common bond. If we fail to focus on redefining men's roles alongside women's, we are in danger of fostering a culture of hostility among men who are feeling left out in school, in the job market, and in relationships. These men will be less likely to accept gender equality, less likely to advocate advances for women, and less likely to foster healthy relationships and families. For the sake of a healthy society, we need to redefine a positive and appropriate form of masculinity. So this is really interesting. Here we have a man, again, it's not a woman saying, men, you have to change yourself. This is a man who recognizes that women's roles have changed. Women over time have had more opportunities available to them. We can now make the choice between staying at home and going to work and everything in between. But men didn't get that same evolution of their roles. They still are expected to be the provider. They're still expected to be strong. Men who stay home with kids still face the stigma for doing so because it's considered to be what women do. Men who express emotion are shamed or mocked. So the game has changed for women, but parallel changes for men have not happened. There are a lot of studies about the pressure that this puts on men and the manifestation that it has in physical and psychological impacts, as well as isolation from other people. There have been findings of higher levels of suicide and violence among men, and our expectations of masculinity have been a reason for that. Last year, the American Psychological Association came up with guidelines for treating men that acknowledges the traditional societal pressures put on men and the impact that those pressures have on both men and women. So there's there's been a whole professional analysis of this. Now, these, these guidelines came out last year, and there was a lot of backlash against these guidelines as a, an attack on men. After that, there was, you may remember the Gillette ad, which I played parts of that in the beginning of this episode. That also triggered a really strong reaction among men because it was seen as an attack, that, that it was an attack on masculinity as opposed to an attack on a particular way of expressing masculinity that has a negative societal impact. And what's unfortunate is that both the American Psychological Association guidelines and the Gillette ad are looking to offer up new ways for men to be fuller expressions of themselves. It's not a way to attack men or limit men but really would open up new opportunities for men that I would hope they would see and, and embrace. We believe in the best in men. Men need to hold other men accountable. Smile, sweetie. Come on. To say the right thing. To act the right way. Bro, not cool, not cool. Some already are. 
and weighs big Yo, man. and small. There was an article earlier this year by Emily Moon about the American Psychological Association guidelines. And she notes that even though these guidelines are coming out now, the female guidelines have been around since 1978. Apparently the reason for that is that male guidelines were not considered to be needed because uh, the male psychology was just accepted as the norm. So that was the standard. So to treat someone who's not the standard, you need guidelines. That's why there were female guidelines and not male guidelines. But this article in looking at the APA guidelines notes stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression. These are traits typically associated with traditional masculinity in American culture. As new guidelines from the American Psychological Association warn, they might also have negative consequences for men's relationships and health and society at large. For example, with emotional restriction or denying vulnerability or weakness, we know men complete suicide at four times the rate of women. And that's a public health problem. Part of that difference is men are more likely to choose a more lethal method, like firearm use, but it's also an avoidance of seeking help along the way. And then Ms. Moon tackles this in, in a way that I think is really interesting and sets up what I think is really the problem and the biggest challenge for changing our definition of masculinity. She says, girls and women are often oppressed by their gender role, and boys and men are often restricted and constricted by their gender roles. It's a similar pressure, but operating in a different direction. Women have historically been kept down and repressed, and men have been kept from leading fuller emotional lives. The very common example is the boys don't cry phase. Tell that to an infant. Infants don't come into the world with gender socialization saying, I can't ask for help or I can't cry or I'll get punished. It isn't until later in life that we start to see those differences. And over time, those become rules. And there's fear about violating these rules. As we think about those rules, um, another article had a really interesting perspective. This is Monica Hesse in a Washington Post article in January 2019. And she writes, the more men cling to rigid views of masculinity, the more likely they are to be depressed or disdainful or lonely. That mirrors the American Psychological Association uh, guidelines as well. And she focuses on the power structure. And this is what I think is so interesting. She says, what's difficult about the APA's guidelines is that they ask us to wrestle with a complicated idea that in a society in which gender roles have historically been rigid, and that rigidity has placed the lion's share of power in the hands of one of the genders, it's possible for the rulers to be harmed right along with the ruled. But that's what bad systems do. They mess up everyone. Now, I suspect that many women listening will not have a whole lot of sympathy for that statement, because we haven't had the power, we didn't build the structure, and yet we have been harmed as much as or more so than men. But ultimately, if we accept that where we are is really not good for anybody, then hopefully we can turn to finding a path forward. All of this research got me thinking about the fact that we have a current definition of masculinity that isn't good for either men or women. 
There are suggestions for how to change this that would open up doors for men and positively impact women as well. And that all sounds good. So I was thinking, well, why don't we just implement that? But of course, it's not that easy. <laughs> I wanted to get the male perspective of whether our societal definitions of masculinity could really be redefined and how quickly. So I sat down again with my friend, Sam Devins, to get his perspective. Here's our conversation. I just wanted to talk a little bit about when you hear discussions about a masculinity crisis or calls to redefine manhood, mm -hmm. like how does that land with you as a man? Does it feel like you're getting attacked? Does it feel like something we should do? Does it feel like something that is never going to happen because it's too ingrained in who we are? And ultimately, if it threatens power, is it ever going to happen? When you ask like, how it can change and how can we redefine masculinity, um, I have to go back to how we're raised and how boys are being raised. There are a lot of programs in place and a lot of talk about bullying and how they're trying to curtail a lot of that in schools. And I don't think they're doing enough. I think that redefining masculinity has to be part of the curriculum. And not only redefining masculinity, but redefining for women their their sense of who they are and what's available to them and building them up. And I know that there are STEM classes mm -hmm. and uh, there there's a, there's a lot of effort in getting girls involved in science and math and um, computers and programming and, and those languages. I understand that exists. But I don't think there's enough that's in place for boys in schools. And, you know, you have private schools that you learn about theology. There's a theology class. I really do think that it should be a daily class or a daily section that redefines masculinity. And whatever form that takes, whatever approved curriculum that takes, it has to be, there has to be a daily touch point for that. You can't just say, guys, stop bullying each other. Mm -hmm. There aren't enough parents or teachers to police all that. And I think the reason why middle school and high school is so traumatic for a lot of people, especially those that are dealing with their own sense of sexuality, um, that have questions and uh, don't display those aspects of being a man, they're the ones that get hounded and attacked, and it's not even microaggressions. You, know, you talk about how mm -hmm. every boy's experience is a series of microaggressions that keeps us all in this box. For those that aren't particularly masculine, that are maybe a little bit more bright, like to read books, or yeah. are into theater or music, you're a band geek, or you're a theater nerd. The underlying current of that is that you're gay, you're homosexual. And that's terribly unfair, and that leaves lasting scars for boys that become men. And then you adopt different masks and faces as you grow older, you know. I think I was raised with a fair amount of empathy. I was just, my nature was, I had uh, more empathy than I, than I felt that other, other boys had. But you know, when I played football, I had to completely, completely deny all that stuff you know I'm not going to go out there and say hey guys let's talk about our feelings that wasn't going to happen you know and I understand that football is a game that is violent and you need to completely change yourself to play it or you're going to get hurt and if you had said that what would have happened to you I would have got my butt kicked 
Absolutely. I would have been singled out and ostracized and I probably wouldn't have played and the coaches would have seen that and I would have, you know, the pecking order would have been completely established outside of my control for just even like uttering, you know, any of those words Mm -hmm. of like, you know, well, this is how I feel. It's just like, we don't want to know how you feel. Are you hurt or are you injured? That's all we need to know. Can you play or not? And just shut up and play, you know, shut up and listen to us, you know, get in line. The point is that we have to start early and that has to be a sustained program and it has to be completely rethought, re-engineered. And I don't see even the very beginning of that happening. And your kids are how, what what grades are they in right now? Third grade and kindergarten. And so even at kindergarten, like the first time that a a child is in school, aside from maybe preschool, Mm -hmm. You're not seeing um, efforts to combat the traditional notions of gender? Not really. I mean, it's, it's more generalized. Um, they have this thing, are you a, a bucket filler or a bucket tipper? Mm. I think that's the, the, the way they say it. Are you taking away or are you giving back? Mm-hmm. And don't be a bucket tipper. Which is, you know, I mean, they're, kin- they're in kindergarten. They understand that concept. It's yeah. a metaphor that they can kind of get their head around. But my kindergartner already has some, some ideas about girls and boys. And I don't want to hang out with girls. I know that's girly. I don't want, I'm not going to paint or draw with those colors. We've talked about this, how pink and purple are colors that they won't even grab. Crayons that they won't even touch. So whenever they ask... Yeah, what's your favorite color? I always throw in pink. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I do like pink. And um, how do they react to that? They always challenge me on it. Mm. And as as many times as I've discussed it with them, they keep saying like, but "Dad, that's that's a girl color." I'm like, "No, it's not, wow. guys. No, yeah. it's not." You know, if you pair it with these other colors, we went to the little pottery painting thing, and I picked like <laughs> like three different shades of pink <laughs> and like purple and yeah, just to kind of show them that it came out looking looking beautiful they even said like good job wow i like that you know Mm -hmm. i was like okay i scored a point there but a week from now it's going to come up again Mm -hmm. and they're going to draw pictures that don't have pink in them you know so it has to start even before kindergarten to really affect some change it starts in the home and i do like the fact i do like parents that don't hand their daughters dolls Mm -hmm. and don't just hand their sons trucks and I'm not familiar with the biology of it all, but I, 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 I know just anecdotally um, through my own kids and um, friends that boys kind of gravitate to the trucks. And I'm not sure if that's just because those are the, the toys that are purchased for them. Mm-hmm. Those are the toys that you'll find in a sandbox. And I just don't know what kids naturally gravitate towards but I do think that we can steer it in the direction yes if you if, if you want to go play with dolls go play with dolls mm-hmm. you know and um, living where we do in the Bay Area um, I've known parents that you know uh, little boys in preschool will show up in dresses and honestly it's like I'm like it's a little like my first knee-jerk reaction is kind of jarring I'm like oh my gosh you know the boy's wearing a dress, but then I'm like, my second, my second thought is like, good for them, you know, mm-hmm. let the boy decide who he wants to be and what he wants to wear and what he thinks is beautiful. Yeah. Um, I remember being so happy when one of my nephews who wanted a like little 
Jeep that he could drive around. He was probably five or six, maybe. And he chose a pink one. And my brother and his wife were fine with that, mm -hmm. which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but at some point, you're right, they, they get the... I, I don't think it's biological. I think it's so ingrained in our society and our expectations and the subtle cues that we give and not just the things that we say um, that it's it's hard to uh, change that. I wanted to get your perspective on something else which was around whether men could be incentivized to change things. So we are in a place where um, men have really set up the structure of the workplace that we're in and have a fair amount of privilege and power. There's a lot of research that shows that men suffer from those structures, that there are effects that come from not being able to show emotion and not being able to ask for help and things like that. And I'm curious about your perspective. I know you don't speak for all men, but your perspective on whether it's feasible to envision a future in which we change that structure if that means men cede some power that they have currently enjoyed? Uh, I'd like to give a thoughtful answer and, and kind of provide a little hope. And we've talked about this a little bit, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. Why not? It's a bell that cannot be unrung. What do you mean? Men who have gotten to this point in their life... It's just old dog and new tricks, and not to oversimplify it. But here we are, and we've gotten to this point, and men have fought tooth and nail to get to where they are, um, and in a lot of ways have sacrificed a lot um, emotionally to have the job that they have, um, the house that they have. And um, even saying that, I'm kind of putting myself in the shoes of some women who would listen to this and it's like, oh, boo-hoo. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's so tough. I don't think that uh, collectively men are just going to um, come together and say, well, how can we change this? I think it happens in little ways and there is um, a slow consciousness, growing consciousness that, that men are having uh, through conversations like this and there's more of a dialogue and more access to alternatives that and podcasts and uh, different things that there's just more information out there than there was 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So with that information, yes, things are going to change. Um, but we and men are dug in like ticks right now. If it's going to happen, it has to happen with generations that are coming up now. I think there is more dialogue with millennials and you know what's interesting? Millennials have, that term has a negative connotation. And do you know why? Because they're more emotional <laughs> and they're more expressive. <laughs> and here we are, Generation X, mm -hmm. looking back at them and saying, just suck it up, right? Yeah, have you ever right. felt that? Like where you're just like, okay, I'm, you've, you've probably worked with millennials. I've had only great experiences with millennials, so I'm an Whoa. exception. No, I'm Whoa. serious. I'm serious. I hear all of this entitlement um, uh, discussion. I haven't seen it, and maybe I've been fortunate in my interactions, and maybe they've been limited. Sure. But 
I've seen what you were just talking about, that there's more openness. Okay. Um, there is more of a sense of, I don't understand why, why women would be treated differently. So from yeah. a gender equality standpoint, I see much more open-mindedness, um, much less of the machismo of Gen X. I mean, I certainly hear complaints from our generation about the millennials, but I, I, I don't share those complaints. Well, I think the, that our generation and those that are older are controlling that narrative yeah. and saying, well, they're entitled they need to pull themselves up and get over it. And this is the way the system works. Our generation is kind of bucking against like the pressure that we're getting from millennials. And when did emotions and feelings uh, show up in the workplace, right? Because we, for decades, have gone to work, had the bad boss, and have been passed over for promotion, have at times experienced exposed our feelings in meetings or have gotten angry or upset or disappointed and expressed that stuff only to learn that that gets us nowhere. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, we just want to tell them, look, we, we've tried it and it doesn't work, right? Yes. And we're trying to protect you mm -hmm. almost in a parenting way. Like we understand, like on some level, I think we understand, yes we all have emotions and wouldn't it be nice that we could share them all and move forward together mm -hmm. collectively. But we have no evidence of that in our own lives. But I wonder if it's a generational shift that is just a subtle shift every generation. Like you think about the baby boomers. Like I think Gen Xers are way more emotionally available than baby boomers were. Oh yeah. And millennials are way more emotionally available than Gen Xers mm -hmm. are. And so it may just be that with each, as each generation becomes less relevant as they get older and the newer generations come over and take more power, it might be more of a, this is the way we've always done it, get in line. Mm -hmm. But the millennial generation is one of the first that I see really changing gender dynamics um, creating a lot more gender fluidity and acceptability. And that may be what's needed to push up against the constraints. It's like we're handing down these societal constraints on traditional notions of masculinity and femininity, the Gen Xers to the millennials, the millennials saying, no, that doesn't make sense anymore. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, well, this is all we know. So you should do it too. And so this might actually be the tipping point where if we can grab more of the millennial perspective or let that come into power, we'll see faster progress in the generations that follow. I don't think that we're going to take what we're learning from millennials and adopt it. Like it's not going to flow up, right? They're going Why to- Why not? Because we can't learn from them or we think we know what's right. Like, um, why not? I don't have an answer for that. I don't, I don't know why that is. Maybe we could just not push our worldview on them and that would make for faster progress than if we did. I disagree with you. I think because we're putting pressure on them as our parents' generation put pressure on us, that every generation puts pressure on the, the generation that's coming up behind them. Mm -hmm. 
And that is the driving force as to why things kind of change. That's where revolutions begin. You know, the 60s, you know, just these long-haired hippies. And what what's the music that you're listening to? And from that, it was a revolution, mm-hmm. you know, and fighting back against the Vietnam War. And we're not just going to go and fight because you guys did, um, your generation and generations past. This collective uh, consciousness that happens happens and and brings a generation together because there's forces outside the generations that have come before them that are kind of creating this little pressure cooker and Mm. so it incubates into something that can change and evolve over time but they need to grow into positions of power for anything to change they need to get into positions of power and start legislating this change because it's it's it might happen peripherally in little ways here and there Mm -hmm. But until they take over, we won't see any type of seismic change until that happens. Well, one thing that um, gave me a little bit of hope on this is that I read this article that there is an all-boys school in Manhattan. So this is, I think, high school age um, that started a feminist club. So you've got this all-boys school, which should be, you know, the 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 ultimate example of all of these boys learning to be men. And these two boys started a feminist club and it's gotten a lot of traction. And in the, they, in the media or in the school. So they've, they've hosted discussions about things that have happened that have gender um, connections like the Kavanaugh hearing. And um, they've invited girls from all girls schools to have conversations with them. So what they've noted is that they feel more confident speaking up about gender inequality or harassment or comments that they hear in their presence. And they feel more confident about being able to speak up. And that to me is amazing progress. So that's the generation, I don't know, is that one or two generations after millennials? And maybe that was happening during the millennial generation. I didn't hear about anything at that time, but it's like perhaps the generations following are being more proactive earlier. Yeah. To your point about needing to start early, maybe it is five generations from now before mm-hmm. we see that ultimate equality, but I'm at least hopeful that there are some high school age boys who feel like they can start a feminist club and have discussions about gender equality. I think so. They're just not in a position of power. It's that power dynamic that once that changes, that's when the change will come. So I found it very interesting to talk with Sam about this. It made me think that while there are parallels between the changing expectations of women and men, there are also differences in how we approach that change. As women, we fought against systems we didn't set up, systems that held us back. While there were some approaches that involved fixing women, changing how we speak, the words we use, adjust to the male norm, lean in, all of these things, the structural ways we were disadvantaged were not our doing. The same cannot be said for adjusting things for men. Men set up these structures that we currently work in. They police each other to ensure they stay in the man box. So to say men can have a better way that allows them to more fully express themselves and live more full lives inherently suggests that the structures men set up are broken. I don't really think they are. I just think that they worked for a different time and they don't work as well now. 
They were built for the Marlboro Man back when smoking was a thing, and it's just not a thing anymore. So I'm encouraged that men are talking publicly about this and identifying ways to move forward. We definitely need more momentum to affect change in something that runs so deep. But I agree with Sam that generational change is key, that we need new ideas from younger generations, and it might take generations to see the kind of sea change that we need. In the meantime, I think the best we can do is talk more about the changes we could start making, have discussions about the societal restraints we have, the man box, don't point fingers at men, don't suggest toxic masculinity affects all men, have constructive conversations about masculinity and where we might move things in a more constructive, beneficial way. And I think we all need to get more comfortable with the fact that changing our societal expectations of men could benefit us all. I keep coming back in my head to Mark Green's article where he reminds us that the creation of the man box and the expectations we place on men and our definitions of masculinity were created by men and women and enforced by men and women. And to make change, we need both men and women to do that. So I hope you have a conversation with someone about that this week. I'm hopeful that at least in the long term, we can leverage generational change to move us forward. But in the meantime, I do think we can make some incremental change. It just takes conversation and open minds and talking openly and honestly about the concept of masculinity. And it's difficult for me to say this for my male listeners, but emotions too. Let's talk about emotions. Let's Let's give each other permission to explore that full emotional spectrum and see what happens. Maybe the world won't come crashing down. If you have other thoughts of where we could go from here, let me know at unravelingpink at gmail.com or on Twitter at unravelingpink. I'll be back next week tackling another topic related to the man box. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.